Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast that will provide research-based information, professional guidance, and personal experiences all about donor conception, from considering using a donor to parenting donor-conceived children. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. I'm your host, Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. After decades of work in the field and working on site at some of the world's best fertility clinics and through my group, the Center for Family Building, I've run workshops for donor-conceived children and have met with thousands of donors and recipients. I can share the truths and the tools that I've learned in all of my years of experience to help you get the information that you need to have a better path to parenthood and to tackle tough parenting issues. If it's about donor conception, we're here. So today I'm talking to Haley Dargnell-King. Haley is joining us from the UK where she's been kind enough to meet us in the evening, which I really appreciate. Uh, She's an advocate, a blogger, and a social media influencer. She not only understands the complexities of raising two donor-conceived children with her wife, but also understands these feelings deeply as she is donor-conceived herself. I'm so glad to have her on today and hope to share her wisdom, her experience, and her thoughts with you so that you can get some help as well. Welcome, Haley. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. So tell everyone a little bit about you and um, what you do and how you kind of got into this world. Yeah, so I suppose the best place to start is probably near the beginning with maybe my parents' story in a sense that um, I I was born to a mum-dad family in the very early 80s after a long road my parents had with infertility. They were very fortunate and had one of the first sort of IVF at uh, Bourne Hall Clinic in Cambridgeshire, UK, with Patrick Steptoe and Robert Edwards. And if anybody knows their IVF history, they were the first um, professors and doctors that were doing IVF technology at the time in the world. So my parents were very fortunate and were able to have two rounds with them and they were successful on their second attempt. um, And I came along. So I knew this growing up was quite a celebrated story. But sadly, what I didn't know until a lot later in life, which I found out in 2015, was that they'd used an anonymous sperm donor as part of the treatment. Um, So obviously that was like a a late disclosure. So I found that out, um, like I say, uh, only really eight, say seven or eight years ago now. And how was that for you, Haley? I always sort of say it was like um, everything changed, but nothing changed um, in that moment. So a lot of late discovery donor conceived people, which is obviously what I am. It can come as quite a shock. I I never anticipated to get that information, you know, and I think by the time I was in my 30s, when I found out you grow up knowing about certain narratives and your what you think is your sort of genetic family history, whether that's medical or even like the stories that you're told as a child, like, oh, you've got your blonde hair from this person in the family or you might have this um, trait or interest or personality from, you know, great auntie May or whoever it may be. And then to actually find actually the paternal line in my case was inaccurate in the sense of the genetics um, was quite a shock. And it, it did kind of make me rethink a little bit about my identity. Um, and of course it didn't change that my dad was still my dad, of course he, and he will always be my dad, but finding out that such pertinent information about my identity so late um, did have a real profound um, effect on me. How would you describe that effect or how you started to think about yourself differently? It was more, like I say, just, I had this one kind of story, if you like, from growing up, like yeah. like, like your, your narrative about your identity. And then all of a sudden you start questioning 
was that right? Some of it must be wrong. Even things like medical history. So um, I had um, some medical problems a few years ago. One of the first questions they ask is, is there any history of X, Y, and Z in the family? I unknowingly gave over the wrong medical history and it actually um, impacted on um, some medical issues that I was having at the time. So it was all these other, like the knock-on effect of finding out late. And also, I think it makes you question things about your own parents. It caused a lot of problems and tensions within our family, obviously finding it out late in life. And I think my parents, even though, you know, they raised me in a very different era to now, and I would never judge them by 20, you know, 2023 standards of, of ethics or whatever it is, because they were told to keep it a secret. Um, but still, there's that issue of feeling like I was like that information that was really important to me was kept from me from you know, people that I love dearly, my, my parents. So it was all these things that um, kind of came to a head when I, when I found out. Mm-hmm. And so did that cause like a rift in your relationship or would, do you feel like you're able to mend it or what, how is that process for you of like kind of just digesting this information, new information, and then kind of recalibrating yourself as being a different sort of person in your in your family not the person that you thought you were you're you're now a different child right you're you're not genetically connected yeah I mean and I felt I did feel very sad I think I went through loads of different emotions um probably every emotion you can think of to disbelief anger upset frustration denial a little there was some denial there like and I actually, we, we went and did, my dad and I did a, a straightforward paternity test just to check because there were some ambiguities at the time due to the nature, you know, it was such early treatment. I mean, and yeah. my parents weren't really told a lot by the doctors. They were, you know, and certainly like even my dad, what they treated my mum. They didn't really treat my dad as in like now you go if, as a couple, if you're in a couple, you go to have fertility treatment as a couple because you're having a baby together. But right. back in the 70s and 80s, it was just, you know, the, the birth in mum that was going to be going and, and they had the treatment. So there wasn't really a lot of discussion with the doctors. So there was sort of an element of, of doubt there. So I said, I suppose I went through all these sort of things, um, all these different emotions, but I think for all the difficulties that there were at the start, it did open up a lot of conversation with my parents. It's taken eight years. Let's, I'm not, you know, I'm talking about this in a very sort of condensed manner. Um, and you can imagine there was lots of conversations over those years, lots of difficult conversations. But ultimately, I feel like I'm actually closer to my parents now, having found out the truth, because I feel like we've been able to work through those issues together as a family. Now I'm doing things, you know, I'm speaking out about my advocacy work. They're very supportive of that. And to me, that shows, you know, that they are fully on board with, you know, what I'm doing. And I can't ask for much more than that, really. So you feel like the fact that your parents were supportive, ultimately, even though initially you feel like they could have done things differently had they known, you feel like just the idea of them kind of joining you, supporting you, feeling like they want to help you in any way they can resolve your struggles with it and be there for you, that's really been kind of a curative factor in... um, helping you get more connected to them and and feeling a little bit more resolved about the facts of this. 100%. Yes. And I think that that support, especially in more recent years, um, has been um, invaluable, really. And it's it's just meant that 
I've been able to kind of move on. My parents have been able to move on. Um, and I think it's the same with anything in life, really. If you, um, any struggles or challenges, it's, you just want to know that the people that are closest to you are there supporting you in the best way possible. Um, and even like with the situation, um, if anybody knows my story, but I actually DNA tested myself. So in 2019, I decided to DNA test myself. And that was a huge decision for me to make. And it made a huge difference knowing that my parents supported me in that. I was very worried about especially telling my dad and I didn't want to upset him um, or think that I was going to looking for another father figure or anything like that, because that certainly wasn't what I was doing. But it was very important for me to find out this missing information that I, I felt that I, you know, that was was lacking now that I, I knew that the truth and to have that support and, you know, love from my parents was invaluable because I think most people would always say that no matter how difficult life is or struggles that we may have it's really important to have those that are closest to us supporting us and like I say to have that was was like I say invaluable it's fantastic so you know I think for a lot of people who are hearing this Haley they worry and I hear from patients all the time particularly in those early years when they're first starting to disclose to their children they always say you know, what if I mess up? What if I make a mistake? Or what if I say the wrong words? Or what if I don't share the right information? And, you know, what I try to, to share with patients is that it's not a one-step process. You know, you're going to be sharing this over time. And parents make mistakes, right, in life, right? We all make mistakes. And it's how we kind of rebound from those mistakes and try to mend, just like any relationship, mend those errors and fix things and try to share with our children how we're feeling and just continually sharing our love for them and our support and our interest in what's important to them, right? Not just what's important to us, but what's important to them, showing that we care about what's important to them really can make a huge difference. And it sounds like that that's similar to your experience. Yes, 100%. I, I can agree more with that. Depending on who's listening to this, I think it can work in different contexts. So if you have children that are older and donor conceived and you haven't told them, it's still time and there's still things that you can do to have those conversations in a loving and supportive way. Because sadly, you know, we've got commercial DNA testing now. So people are finding out through other means. And that is a lot, you know, a lot more um, traumatic, I would say, to find out by accident by doing a 23andMe kit or an Ancestry.com kit as opposed to sitting down and talking to your children and saying, look, I, I we need to have a, talk, a chat about this. Um, and you can do that. And there are there is help and resources obviously out there to, to try and facilitate that process. But also with our young children now that are donor conceived, I get it because I can say I've got children myself um, that are donor conceived with my wife. And I still worry, like, am I doing this right? Am I, are they understanding? Mm. Or I think that that's just completely normal. And I think, like you say, just to have a bit of accountability. So if things maybe don't go to plan or we do make mistakes, which we're going to, it's like having accountability maybe for those mistakes, but also just being supportive and thinking, right, well, maybe this didn't work so well this time, but what can we do to make it better next time? Or, you know, or how can we improve the, the conversation moving forward? That's great. So tell us a little bit about that, Haley. How have you um, thought about your um, children and their experiences having had the insight personally of being donor conceived? Like, how does that, how do you think that that changes how you approach their story or their, um, their lives and their understanding of their donor? 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing, like we had, my wife and I really started looking into this, I suppose, when our children were about 18 months, two years old, so starting to talk. And we were like, right, what are we going to do differently? You know, how how are we going to do this differently and better um, and make things more open and not something to be ashamed of or avoid or put off? Because I think sometimes parents think, well, I don't really need to talk about that now. Our, our children are only young. We'll wait till they're teenagers or we'll wait till they're older. Right. But really, I, you know, from my personal reading that I've done on the topic from speaking to lots of donor conceived people, professionals, we looked at children's storybooks, first of all. So books that explain our children's conception story. Um, they were very, very helpful. And we just took it from there, really. And just we we start we, as our children now are nearly six. They're they're starting to ask us questions now about the process, as opposed to it being all parent led. We are starting to almost get sort of questions coming back now from the children, um, and it's just nice to have. It's a conversation and a topic that our, I hope our children feel like they can bring up and, and ask us questions about without being worried that they're going to upset you know mammy and mama like my wife and I. So. So, Haley, you just cut out a little bit. So I just want to kind of repeat a little bit of what you said. So you were saying that, you know, you felt that you really wanted to make sure that your children had the information from day one. And after all the research that you've done and with your own experiences, you have concluded that it makes the most sense to start right away. And you started with these storybooks and started talking to the kids. And as you're doing that, it sounds like your own experience of doing it has become more and more comfortable, right? It doesn't feel, even though in the beginning you felt like a little bit awkward, I want to get this right. As you talk about it more and more, it becomes more and more comfortable for you and just part of the family dynamic over time, right? Yes, exactly. And it's just kind of bringing the conversation into everyday life. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a big sit down talk. It's just things that you can bring into conversation. So yeah, in our house, what we try to do is make sure that we kind of lean into our kids' curiosity about donor conception or the donor um, as opposed to shying away from it. And the example I sort of give is that, especially like in LGBTQ families or in my case with um, my wife and I, obviously there's no daddy in our in our household or family. And we've had it where the kids will say, well, you know, mommy, why, why haven't we got a daddy? Um, or Where's our daddy, for example? And normally, I think most people would turn around and say, well, we, um, you know, we haven't got a daddy in our family. That would be the end of the conversation. But what we try to do is use that as a way to open up questions. So instead of just ending the conversation there, because it can be awkward and uncomfortable for parents to have that kind of question, you know, from a young child. But to actually say, well, you, you haven't got, um, you know, we haven't got a daddy in our family, but because you've got two mummies. But have you got any questions about that? Um, and just opening up. The opportunity for our children to ask further questions as opposed to shutting the conversation down because I think even when we when we shut down the conversation sometimes even if we don't mean to I think our children can kind of pick up on that uncomfortableness um and and that sort of maybe discomfort I suppose not uncomfortableness discomfort um that I think children are quite good at picking up on that and what we didn't want is our children to feel like they couldn't ask questions about their conception story or about the donor or or anything really to do with to do with that kind of topic so that's what we've tried to do and as our children are getting older they're now like I say nearly six we're getting questions coming back to us now so oh. um yeah like what so kind like of questions what do you get they have a lot of questions about their siblings so we're actually in touch with some of their 
donor siblings. So that's other families that have used the same donor that we have. So we have a lot of questions about them and they ask to speak to them every now and again. Like, um, so we'll send, you know, they're all very similar ages, but we'll show them photos or send a message to one of the families or we'll arrange a quick Zoom call or whatever it is. Um, so we get questions like that. They ask about the donor. So they'll say, you know, um, so we, we use lots of different words to refer to him too. So we used an open ID donor. So we don't have identifying information. Potentially, obviously, if our children want that when they're older, they can apply um, formally through uh, the UK HFEA, which is a regulatory body here. They can apply for that information um, when they turn 18. But we have an extensive profile. We have photographs. We have a huge like personality assessment, lots of things that he's obviously interested in that he's noted down on his profile. And we talk to the children about that. So they may say, you know, um, you know, what's the donor interested in? You know, he's written down that he likes this and this is his favorite color and, and all these kinds of things. And it's just um, and, it, and I hope our intention is, is that they feel like that they, they can talk about it and they don't have to hide that curiosity because they don't want to upset us. Is there, is, you know, is there two mums um, that we're not going to get overly, um, yeah, just like uh, upset or or think of it as a topic that is like a forbidden taboo within the family? You know, you can't talk about the donor type thing. So, and for those of you who are, who are listening, um, you know, I'm sorry, Haley is kind of going in and out, but it's so her her words of wisdom are so valuable. It's really worth hanging in here because uh, sorry about the connection, but it's really great. All of these things that she's sharing with us, as you can see, it's so valuable to be able to have this open dialogue. And it sounds like Haley, what you're saying now is that, you know, those initial conversations that maybe in the beginning you felt a little uncomfortable discussing are now kind of a free flowing conversation. It just becomes easy to talk about it. Yes. And that's, I think that's the, the, the aim. Um, I'm sure things will change as the children get older. Um, and like any children will have the teenagers and all of that to deal with, but hopefully this, you know, the open environment will continue as they get older. That's great. It's fantastic. And I, hopefully it's encouraging for everybody listening that this is something that an experience that you can have that, you know, once you open the dialogue, this could just be a free flowing conversation. And it just becomes very comfortable. How about for you, Haley? Because I know that you also reached out to your genetic uh, family. And how was that experience for you? And do you feel that that was helpful for you? And how did you go from feeling kind of awkward about it or that it was difficult to a place where, like you're saying with your kids, where it became much more easy and free-flowing? It was difficult at the start. I think Initially, I just wanted to find out some basic information, mainly on my genetic father. So I was able through um, Ancestry.com and extensive genealogy work to actually find him. And obviously, he was previously anonymous, so there was you know no information. Um, although he did say that he'd always wondered about his donations and any children that would have resulted, I don't you know to actually have me show up was quite a shock. I think I'm so. Sure. There was lots of things to navigate, I think. And essentially, you know, I'm, I'm doing that quite, you know, I'm 40 now. So I was doing that sort of in my, my late 30s. He's in his um, 60s. So I suppose it's kind of like it was uncharted territory. I had no real support or guidance how to manage those sort of connections. And I would say the same with my siblings as well. So I obviously matched with some uh, of my own donor siblings through ancestry um and 23andme and the various commercial sites so 
And it's just, it's challenging. And I would say that it's challenging doing so, so late in life, because I I think the other issue is that like Jonathan, my genetic father, he, uh, like I say, it was almost like he's never been able to prepare for those conversations because I don't think he ever knew whether they would happen. Whereas now, that's why I'm very big advocating that donors get educated because there is a very strong chance, even if they go down as anonymous, that they will be located through commercial DNA testing even if themselves aren't on the sites it only takes a relative of theirs to be on the site to find them right and I think that's why I I feel very strongly that you know we can learn a lot from the years gone by because I was very fortunate and that Jonathan was very receptive to contact but a lot of people of my generation had a very negative reaction because they were promised anonymity, the donors. Yeah, I think, like I say, we can learn a lot. And I, I like to think now that donors are being very, very much educated or, you know, they should be educated about contact later on down the line with um, any children or then adults that are born from their donations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it is difficult because there are so many donors who are still kind of considered anonymous, even though they're not anonymous. And so those donors, we don't know if they've been counseled properly. And we don't know, even if they have been counseled properly, if they really can kind of see it, right? When you're young, I mean, I've, I've counseled so many donors in my life, and it's, it's very hard sometimes to tell a young person to think ahead, you know, 20 years from now. And what is your life going to be like? And they say, oh yeah, it's fine. It's fine. You know, I I remember when I was 20 years old, I probably would have just like thought, okay, where am I going on vacation with my friends? I don't want to think about this. Right. You know, it's very hard to kind of wrap your mind around the gravity of there are going to be these human beings in 15, 20 years who are going to come and want to talk to you. And you might be, you know, married with kids of your own. You might be wanting to travel the world. You might be, you know, in all different places in your life. And all of a sudden you're kind of faced with the gravity of all of these people and all of their feelings and all of their families. And it, I'm sure it's a lot. I'm sure Jonathan um, had to deal with a lot of those feelings. Yeah. And like I say, and it is, I've been like I say, very fortunate with Jonathan. Um, he's been very welcoming um, and we have a, you know, a good relationship. We've stayed in touch. Um, I don't see him as a father figure. He's more like a friend or an uncle kind of, I suppose, really. Um, mm-hmm. But it has been very helpful to to meet him and see him, and we look very alike. Um, I, I always do. say, yeah, I, I always yeah. say it was like looking at a familiar stranger. But you know, like I say, been more discussion within the communities and within clinics and banks about anonymity is dead. Really, I struggle to see how anybody yeah. can really be using anonymous. I say with air quotes donors now because yeah. you're not anonymous, and even in the UK where we've had it, uh, it's been illegal to use anonymous donation for, well, nearly 20 years now. The They're actually even thinking about removing it. We've got anonymity till 18. But because of the huge jump in commercial DNA testing, there, our regulatory body are considering removing anonymity at 18 because they can't promise it anymore to donors yeah. or families. So it just shows you how much has changed in quite a short period of time and how I think <laughs> DNA testing is incredible. And it's meant that I've been able to have a lot of questions answered for me, but it's also a little bit of a monster in the sense that I think it's growing so fast. Um, the technology and the fertility industry just hasn't caught up with it. Um, so um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what's going to happen. I think, in, you know, in the next sort of five to 10 years with, with all of that. Yeah. 
And how did you feel, Haley? Were you nervous to meet Jonathan? Um, were you anxious to meet your donor-related siblings? And how did you kind of decide, okay, I'm going to do this? And what were you? What was going through your head? I was very nervous to meet Jonathan. Um, I was. It was kind of exciting, nervous, loads of different like feelings all at once. Really, um, it was like I say, it was. It was the actual search was quite exhilarating at times, which sounds a bit strange, but it was, you know, very like actually doing all the, the research behind it and looking at family tree history. And and I think that's probably down to my personality as well, because I am quite an inquisitive to meet him. And the same with my siblings that was difficult with them. I've not actually met them in person yet. I've only had communication uh, virtually. So on the phone, um, and Zoom calls, but we're hoping to meet up properly this year, fingers crossed. And how have they gone? How have they been uh, so far, the Zoom calls with the genetic siblings? Did they know about you or had they not found out about you? How did that happen? So we all matched via because I was born in an era where there was no records. So the only way that we did match was through the DNA sites. And out of the four of us only, so I, I went into DNA testing, knowing that I was donor conceived. And so did one of my brothers. He knew from quite a young age, but two of my other siblings actually had no idea they were donor conceived until they tested and matched with obviously like, because by this point, Jonathan is actually on Ancestry now. So he's actually gone on there to confirm the connection. But obviously by him being on there, when the siblings have gone on, obviously they've come up and it, it, it's very overt because they are matched directly with him and with, you know, with me. Um, it's been very, very difficult for those siblings because they've essentially found out the information from from doing a DNA test. You know, they, they had no idea prior to testing, um, which is a really sad thing that, that that's happened, you know. And I know it, it's been a long road for them having to process everything. And there's probably you probably see a variety of uh, difference in the experiences of how their parents are handling it, right? Yes, um, I don't know a great deal of their individual circumstances with their parents, but I think that finding out in a DNA test, like I touched on earlier, it's probably probably one of the worst ways to find out. And I do know lots of donor conceived people. Um, within the community of that have found out even sadly after their parents have passed away. So they found this information out and they haven't even got anybody to ask, you know, the, their parents aren't around anymore to ask the questions. And that must be really, really hard. Um, and that's why I'm such a big supporter and advocate, if you like, of, you know, you're never too old to, to tell your kid, you know, if even if you're listening to this and you've got a lot of children that are a lot older, there's still time to have those conversations and like for whatever, you know, just don't let them find out by taking a 23andMe kit. I just think it's, it's the worst way to find out. Right. It's never too young, but it's never too late. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a yeah. good way of saying it, you know. Yeah. We talk to different people, aren't we, in that sense? Because I find, I find like people come to speak to me that are like all different ages and different situations um, whether and it's right from people that are starting to think about having a family and with donor conception and the things that they maybe want the things that they'd like to ask their egg and sperm banks and ask my opinion on that all the way up to like you know adults that are older than me that have found out they're donor conceived and then ask me about the situation and support and stuff and it's there's like I think because we've gone through the decades of 
different regulation and different um, attitudes towards donor conception. We're having all these different experiences, aren't we? And it's just trying to try and help as ra- a range of people that have gone through lots of different um, situations, depending on, yeah, like, like you say, when they were born, um, the type of family that they were born into um, and all this kind of stuff. But it's it's been great to see how much donor conception has moved forward, I think, in the last sort of few years, certainly. Um, and like I said, I just hope that continues. Yes, I hope so too. And where you are in the UK, there's much more openness, right? You have a national registry. We have no national registry in the US, even though some states have, have been trying to enact legislation to regulate um, donation. It's really not possible because there's no governing body that's going to pay for this. So unfortunately, we don't have anything like that. And I think there is a trickle-down effect, right? If you're, if the government and if the clinics and if the banks and everyone is not um, able to do this, there, I think there is this message that it's not necessary. And so I think it's really hard for people who are just broaching donor conception to wrap their mind around how important it is to disclose early, if possible, as early as you can, and really to help your children feel comfortable and not to be afraid of it. As you're saying, Haley, you, you know, you really treasure your relationship with your parents and you're grateful that they were open with you. And um, in spite of the fact that you learned late and you, you know, learned in a way that's really, you know, difficult, you know, you're your parents were able to repair the relationship with you by just being close to you and being available to you, right? And and it sounds like you're saying the same thing with Jonathan, your donor, that his openness was really helpful to you. Yes, yeah, definitely. And I've been fortunate in that sense because, you know, I have had that support from from both sides, if you like, which has made things, you know, easier. And it would be nice to think that everybody has that, but sadly they don't. Um, so, you know, that's why I think it's so to have these conversations and to keep having these conversations. Um, and like you say, you touched on the sort of the lack of regulation in the US, which I think is highly problematic. But I can understand because you've got all the different states, you've got all the different, um, obviously. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, you've got massive sperm and egg banks and all the rest of it. And each area has their own rules. But I think I think it's starting to happen is that now people are talking about it parents becoming more educated about the different options so and maybe what's in the best interest of the child and keep and providing themselves with options you know so even looking at things like obviously known donation and how that can work and a lot more practitioners and therapists are becoming more knowledgeable about um how known donation can work and the things that need to be worked through before and everything like that my hope is that as the conversations shift and parents become more educated, they will almost kind of force the banks and the clinics and the fertility industry into kind of making what I would consider more ethical um, decisions about how they how they run their, you know, and how, you know, for, for example, how many family units are created from one donor. Um, you know, in the US, there is no limit whatsoever. So not to frighten people, but you potentially, you know, we, we know of um, documented cases where there are sibling groups of, you know, two, three, four hundred um, children from one donor. And in my opinion, that's unacceptable. But because there is no regulation, there is nothing to control that. But what I would like to think is going to happen is that parents and other you know, professionals like yourself and things start speaking up a little bit more about what is in the best interest of the child and the family, the donor-conceived family, 
Well, just a couple of things about that, Helene. You went out a little bit, so I just want to um, reiterate what you said. We were talking about um, this idea of regulating for sperm banks, let's say, for example, to, to regulate the numbers and maybe also to be able to help them you know, understand how important it is to kind of keep those numbers reasonable. But, you know, the problem is, is that I think that this, my experience professionally is working with these banks and agencies, you know, they tell, and clinics, they do tell the donors, you're only supposed to donate a number of times. And the donors say, I agree. And sometimes they leave the sperm bank or the egg bank or wherever and say, yes, I'm finished. I'm never going to donate again. And so I think that the egg bank or the sperm bank or the clinic is doing all they can in that moment to try to, to contain it, but they can't determine if someone is going to go donate to their friend on Facebook or go to another sperm bank or another. There's no way to know. So that's the first thing. And also, you know, this whole business about, I just want to kind of, since I have the opportunity to bust this myth a little bit about um, getting medical records. And um, it's really not possible for, for two reasons. Number one, it's not possible, at least in the US, to search someone's medical records completely. You can't, it's not possible and really a waste of time and energy for everybody to be fighting for this, to try to find every medical record every, anybody's ever had. I've had many patients in my therapy practice for many, many years. Nobody will ever know that they were in my practice because of or HIPAA compliance laws. And so it's not possible to find every hospitalization and therapist that your donors had. And secondly, so so that's, you know, I think kind of useless. And also a person who has committed a crime will not be registered unless they're convicted. So you could have somebody who's murdered people, who's a pedophile, whatever, unless they've actually been convicted of that crime, there's no record of their um, arrest. So we would not know. So I think that, you know, there's been a lot of energy spent on this. And unfortunately, I don't really think it's going to be fruitful. I think what we really need is to make sure everybody has psychological screening, which up until recently, many donors did not have. And so that really could help us tremendously. And I know certainly from the adoption world, we have no way to screen birth mothers um, or birth fathers. We don't do any genetic screening. We don't do psychological screening. And certainly you have no control over what happens in utero. With donor conception, you have control over what happens in utero. And you also have this wonderful ability to do psychological screening and testing. So that's just my two cents for the day about this that whole issue. I hope that everyone um, thinks about that. With regard to this issue of um, donor-conceived siblings, I was just speaking with um, Wendy Kramer, who you know runs the Donor Sibling Registry, and she said that um, some people are are trying to kind of put, and I know there's no positive spin you can put on 400 siblings, but they're trying to sit, to put as positive a spin as they can on it and say, okay, you know, I have all these siblings. I thought I was an only child but now I have all these great people that I can be friends with. And so that's going to be a really nice thing for me. And I guess that's, you know, all we have at this moment until we can regulate the industry. All we really have is the opportunity to 
reach out to donor-related siblings and hope to develop nice relationships with them. Um, you know, we can't guarantee that we're going to like everybody we find, but maybe we will find some people that we like and that we enjoy spending time with. And hopefully that can be a nice gift to give your children that opportunity to meet with other donor-related siblings. You know, I know personally, I always wanted different siblings myself. So <laughs> um, lots of people want different brothers or sisters than they have anyway, right? Yeah, no, I think obviously the donor sibling registry has been running a long time now, and that is obviously a good, you know, resource for people to connect. But like going back to the clinics, I think if we're really honest, the clinics and the banks have been greedy and, you know, very profit driven. If they wanted to enforce stricter family limits, they could. Um, I've had chats with big banks in Europe, um, had some very honest conversations, and a lot of the time, um, like I say, it, it does come down to money. Um, so I think we, these conversations are really good to have because, I, like I say, really, I don't think in 2023 we should be actively um, in a situation where people, you know, human beings are being created, like I say, on a production line where we're up, you know, 200 siblings. Yes, it's great having met my own, you know, having met them online, my own siblings, and we're connected with my own children's siblings. I think there's a difference between maybe having, 10 to 20 siblings to 200 yes, siblings and, but I think what I'm saying is banks can and should be doing more to restrict that um, and they can and um, you know they're in control of how many vials of sperm they sell that yes they might not be able to control where the donor goes and I understand that but they at an individual level can can control how many vials of sperm they send out they can control what types of testing they do on so they can do genetic testing i understand they can't necessarily get full medical history but they can go back to the donor and check in five years time for renewed history because what we're finding is a lot of the banks are taking a snapshot um history of a donor say at 18 and never following up with that donor and as we all know we all get old and have different ailments um things come up in our family history and i think yes we maybe can't retrospectively go back and get medical records as such. And I understand maybe the complications with doing that, but banks could be looking to get information, you know, like I say, in five years time, in 10 years time, but they don't because they haven't, they, they haven't either got the systems to do that because they haven't invested in it um, or they've chosen not to. Um, and like I say, I think parents are becoming more aware because there are banks that are doing these things and they're doing things in my opinion, better than others. Um, and I, like I say, I hope that the word gets out and that more parents will start, you know, they'll start using banks and clinics that are doing these things that others have, you know, aren't doing or choose not to do. Mm -hmm. So, well, I think that goes back to this idea of openness, Haley, because, you know, the research that was just recently prevent, presented at ASRM was that, you know, even though sperm and egg banks do have in their contracts with donors, they, they're, they, they agree, the donors agree to reach out back out to the sperm banks or the egg banks if they have changes in medical history. This recent survey with um, egg donors, when they said, you signed this contract saying that you were going to reach back out if you had a change in your medical history, have you had a change in your medical history and did you report it? And they said, yes, I've had a change in my medical history and no, I have not reported it. Right. So that's really tough because people rely on thinking that's going to happen, right? Because they look at the contract and they say, well, the donor said they're going to report if they have a change in the medical history and they're not reporting it. And so, again, you know, if we kind of have more openness, 
then we can be in touch, right? And then you can know, right, if your donor's 25 and she's doing great and there's no health problems whatsoever, but let's say 35, she has breast cancer. Well, you know, you want to be able to maybe get early mammogram screenings for your daughter. And so if you are in touch with your donor, then you know what's going on in her life, right? And so, yeah, you know, I think that would solve a lot of problems, just being able to have some openness. Yeah, definitely. And I I think it's a great point, Lisa. And it's interesting how that shift for openness is is now, you know, like I say, we're moving towards that more. Um, And I know in maybe sort of an egg donation, it's more common as well, maybe in the sense that um, it certainly is over here where there is facilitated sometimes contact pre-18 not so much with with sperm donors but it can be with with egg donors um and like i say the hfea are looking to um even have an option to have a, a donor but facilitated through a clinic but open id from birth um actually formally done um, that way and that is one of the things they are considering how it be implemented in practice i don't know the concept of openness is, is shifting everything really in, in relation to donor conception yeah well i certainly know just in my own experience like with my daughter she didn't have her first tooth until she was two years old which is odd right i mean you usually have your first tooth at six months and we didn't know what was wrong with her and we were so worried and we went to the pediatrician he kept on saying let's wait let's wait and then he said you know it could be a, a number of things. Maybe we should have her go to, you know, a pediatric dentist and maybe we should have her have some x-rays. Maybe we even need to investigate if there's something wrong with the x-ray, we might have to do some surgery to see, and maybe we should do some blood work. So I thought, you know, my children were adopted. I know the birth parents. I called the birth mom on the phone and I said, could you t- tell me about your teeth? Did you get your teeth late in life? And she said, yeah, I was at older than two years old when I had my first tooth. And I thought, there you go. So we didn't have, not that, you know, this was not cancer, but, and it's a small issue, but I didn't have to go through all this testing for my daughter because I could just easily pick up the phone and call the birth mom and say, you know, tell me about your teeth. When, you know, when did you get your teeth when you were growing? So that's like a really nice thing to have. And unfortunately we don't have these, you know, these opportunities in donor conception yet. Like I say, the obviously adoption is very different, but we can learn a lot, I think, from the adoption community and and you know, maybe how things have evolved there with like open records and things. And like I say, it will be really interesting time now, certainly in the UK, as we move into sort of the next phase of what they're gonna do really and how they're gonna manage it. Because like I say, the anonymity thing is questionable. Um, you know, it certainly doesn't really exist. It, and I think that's what they're, you know, the people that make the laws over here are, are looking at, um, you know, the laws that we have, they argue that they're not fit for purpose anymore. Um, but also, I, you know, are they fit for purpose really for how, like you say, like when you want that information, it would be nice to have some way to get that information and things like that. And even like my wife and I, you know, we used an open ID donor and, you know, we did consider a known donor, but we didn't really give it as much thought as maybe we should have done. Um, and it's only after I met my own genetic father, if you like, and sort of looked a little bit into the future with our own children. And it, it does make you see things in a different way. I would never sit and say to somebody, you know, you should do X, Y, and Z to build your family. But I'm really passionate about people making informed choices um, and people yeah. having all of that information in front of them 
what are my options? What are the things I need to consider? And, you know, and, and almost like you say, project a little bit into the future to try and think what things that might come up in the future and how maybe you can tackle that, you know, right at the start or, or change something about your journey path to make sure that you're um, best equipped to, for what's coming, I suppose. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And of course, you know, now that you have some open ID donors, you do have this possibility that your donors and, you know, I don't know what your donor is going to be like when you finally reach out to him, but, you know, at one point in their life, they said, yes, I would be open to meeting or open to some kind of connection. So even though there's no guarantee, at least they once said it, whereas if a donor said they want to be anonymous, even though they can't be, you know, it could be tough on our kids because we don't know what they're going to find if that person is going to be welcoming or not, because they said they didn't want to be contacted. Right. So you may have a bunch of donors who don't want any contact. Yeah. And and some donors, I think, you know, if they've given a donation anonymously and that's what they've been told that, that you know, they're going to be anonymous, they might not have ever donated in the first place if they knew, you know, that they were then going to have a knock at the door in 18 years time. And that says a lot, doesn't it? And I think really yes. you need to be looking at, you know, the donors, like you say, and making sure that they're aware that, like you say, an- anonymity is is impossible to guarantee you know, now and moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place for us to, to end for today, but I feel like I could sit here with you, Haley, all day long and ask you a million questions and talk to you about so many things. My mind's buzzing. So I hope you'll come back and do this again and answer some more questions for us. Oh, thank you for having me on. Um, like I say, it's... Hopefully next time we'll have better connection. You you were frozen for a second, but um, uh, hopefully our audience is, is going to be be able to be patient because this is really important information. So, and Haley's a gem. Can you tell us where um, we can reach you and how people can reach out to you? And if there's anything that you, you want to um, share in any parting words? Yeah. So if you're into your Instagram, you can find me um, at DCP Journey to um, RP, which I didn't think too hard about that title. <laughs> I set it up. To it. Um, so DCP Journey to RP, which essentially means donor conceived person's journey to a recipient parent. So that's my handle on Instagram. Or more recently, I've just set up my website. So it's um, allthingsdonorconception.com. So allthingsdonorconception.com. You can find me there. Um, and you'll have links to my socials and things like that. I'm hoping to kind of have, um, like say that the website where I can post more long form blog posts, uh, signposting for for different, um, whether you're a parent or a donor conceived person or professional. Um, and more recently, I've just um, taken up a role as director of the LGBTQ arm um, of an organization called Path to Parent Hub, which um, is a great online platform to support parents that are either thinking of donor conception or parenting their donor conceived children. So you can find me there too. So right. hopefully one of those, if you yeah. search that, you'll come Okay. Um, any questions, you know, like I say, I always welcome questions. My, like I say, you can either find my emails on one of those sites or just connect with me over Instagram in the, in messenger. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Haley. You're fantastic. And for everybody who's listening, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate your time and for listening. Please subscribe. And that's how we can keep going. Rate and review. And of course, you can always reach out to us on 
familybuilding.net, which is our website. And we would love to have you look around, join our newsletter, and uh, just be part of our community. Love to have you. So thank you for joining today. And I'll see you next time. Thank you, Haley. Thank you.